Vietnam or 845-254-6500, 845-254-6500. The American Forest Foundation, designed to support sustainable forest management, improved wildlife habitat, a healthy environment, the harvest of high-quality timber, and increased carbon storage through the Family Forest Carbon Program, available to wooded area landowners in the Catskills and throughout New York, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and Vermont. The American Forest Foundation. Details about the Family Forest Carbon Program at FamilyForestCarbon.org. You're listening to WIOX Roxbury, New York. Community radio in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM. Serving Roxbury, Margaretville, Halkettsville, Halkett Center, Hobart, Gilboa, Conesville, Stanford, South Courtright, North Blenheim, Fultonham, Schoharie, Middleburg, Pine Hill, Highmount, Shandaken, Fleischman, Venetia, Jefferson, Huntersville, Wyndham, Watsonville, Meredith, East Meredith, Meridale, Big Indian, Butts Corner, Kelly's Corner, Bovine and Grand Gorge, Andy's Arkville, Drybrook, Break and Beam, Barkaboom, Arena, Prattsville, Downsville, Summit, New Kingston, Denver, Vega, and everywhere else at WIOXradio.org. <laughs> Listening to WIOX Community Radio live and local in the Catskill Mountains at 91.3 FM and MTC Cable Channel 20 107.5 FM on the campus of SUNY Delhi and everywhere at WIOXradio.org on computers or smartphones. This is From the Forest. Every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m., talk about a different forest related topic with Ryan and John. John, how's it going? Things are good, Ryan. What have you been up to? I've been deer hunting. No kidding. <laughs> Tis the season. Tis the week. It's opening week. Yeah, I heard a few shots um, where I was in Delaware County, but uh, not too many. But some, some bucks went down, I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure. They always do. But I don't know. It's been tough hunting. It's uh, <clears throat> no snow. It was crunchy for a few days. Those are hard conditions to be out in the woods chasing deer. Yeah, as you went east on 28, east of... Um, Pine Hill, 
the snow picked up. There was, there was some snow last night. It would have been good to be on the mountain on that side. But as soon as you came uh, west of High Mound, it's just, uh, I guess it was rain. It's kind of odd. Usually it's the other way around. Hmm. Yeah. But um, hopefully if anybody got out, you know, you had a good day in the woods because it was quiet no matter where you were. Yeah. Yeah. But um, tonight we have One Nature with Brian Quinn. He is an artist who has worked for over two decades with land, plants, animals, and people to create earthworks that engage viewers with the wonder of ecological systems. He's an applied ecologist, considers mountains, rivers, ecosystems, and other types of living landscapes to have inherent rights independent of human use. He's trained in restoration ecology, environmental philosophy, and ecological design. His vision is where development activities improve the environment rather than destroy it. Founder and principal, like I said, of One Nature since 2005 and co-founder of ON Engineering 2018. Let me see if I can get Brian on. Brian, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing well. Doing well. So where are you calling from? I'm actually in a quiet zone here uh, outside of my house, my studio in Beacon, New York. Beacon. Yeah, that's where I first started to hunt. Yeah, 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 it was, uh, uh, was that, uh, that wasn't recent, was it? No, oh, I started to hunt when I was, you know, a teenager, so 
Yeah. And uh, and then in other areas, like anything on the edge of a meadow or a field, the vines are just nuts. Just any vine you can think of from like native stuff like Virginia creeper and other stuff like bittersweet. Just uh, just crazy the amount of vines we have right now. I uh, I remember that when I was in high school. It, you know, it's like a jungle down there by the Hudson River, you know? Especially near the river. But Norway doesn't surprise me either. It's just, you know, everyone, their brother planted it the last 50 years, 60, 80 years, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's but, right. So what got you into this uh, One Nature, Brian? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I, you know, it really started, um, hard to say exactly, because I'm kind of like, you know, the dream keeps changing, you know? But um, it really started, I guess, uh, I got serious about it when I was... Uh, a United States Peace Corps volunteer in uh, early 2000s, 2002 to 2004, I was doing agroforestry work, which really was basically working with smallholder farmers, uh, private land uh, around a forest preserve in a tiny little country in Southeast Africa called Malawi. And I just really enjoyed it. I enjoyed like designing landscapes with people and I enjoyed like working one-on-one with people. And I, I liked the... Um, I've always been more partial to the applied side of science. I, I like actually the doing and the implementation of ideas more than the, the developing of them. Um, and and I, so I was doing that there, and I loved it. And then it wasn't really working too well because I was like, you know, in another people's culture, you know, it wasn't where I come from, you know, the States. And um, I thought, oh, I bet I could do this better at home. And... Um, kind of kind of went for it you know i came back and I, I didn't know how to get any street cred just like you know like a hippie peace corps volunteer or whatever you know uh, coming in so uh, i heard about this thing called landscape architecture um which is a pretty awesome field and it, it seemed like a good way to, to get some experience like some street cred you know so to speak some actual like uh, bona fides so i got a master's degree in that at uh, rhode island Design. Um, and uh, then was able to, uh, you know, with the master's degree, land a series of really good jobs. And um, well, I was simultaneously starting my business. Um, and uh, you know, from from that point on, you know, it's been been quite a journey. Um, you're in the so yeah. My wife was in the Peace Corps during that time in uh, Senegal. Oh no way! Way oh, awesome. Yeah. Did she have a positive experience? Yes and no. I mean, she's like, you know, you're in the Peace Corps, you're in your early 20s, and she's like trying to teach people about things in their country, and it was kind of weird, you know? Yeah, yeah, there's definitely <laughs> definitely an element of, uh, you know, uh, whatever uh, you got to watch out for, because uh, you're just a kid. I mean, we had older volunteers, too. People, some One volunteer was in their late 60s, early 70s. And uh, just having the time of their lives. And they were actually much more effective than I was. You know, um, I just kind of had, like, a ready, willing, and able attitude. I, I did have um, quite a lot of uh, field ecology training going into it. But, um, you know, trying to apply ideas, uh, outside ideas, to a new place is really difficult. And um, just, like, kind of made me recommit to, like, local solutions, you know, bioregional solutions, what's right for the place. Um, not what might be prescribed as right from some far away pedagogy. So, what, what drew you to, to Beacon in Dutchess County? Well, uh, it was 
I was down in the, my wife's from New York City, and we met up in um, Rhode Island. And uh, I was like, you know, we I just finished school. I was like, where do you want to go? We could go anywhere. She's like, let's go. You know, I'm from New York City. Let's go there. And I kind of wanted to get out of the country. And to me, having never lived in New York City, New York City was another country. Like, it was just so different than everything I'd known. I, I had a lot of, and still I have a little bit left, but I had a ton of student debt at the time. I needed like a real job. I got a great position with New York City Parks Department, working in their um, restoration ecology and landscape architecture offices. Um, and it was thirty supposed to be thirty five hours a week, um, and then I would have time to kind of moonlight, make my own kind of dream come alive with One Nature. Um, so I did that for a few years, and then. Um, it was it was more than thirty five hours a week. It was closer to forty five or fifty. You know, once you got the comp time and everything. So, I decided to uh, uh, get some other experience. A uh, couple different consulting firms. Uh, was still trying to keep one nature alive. I, at the time, I was doing like master plans for one nature and kind of very consulting type work. Uh, then, after I got some experience at those other places, I went for it full time and. Uh, 2011, I guess 2010, 20, 2010 maybe, 2011, and, um, you know, it was all consulting. I wanted to start a plant nursery and do the construction, but being in New York City, I had, like, a loft space up in Kiwanis, which, like, not conducive. We, we would keep, like, tools up in my loft space, like an artist loft, and then pile it all in my Honda Fit and then drive up to, like, you know, like, upstate New York, like, way, way up to do a project or out to Connecticut. It was just really really a, a drag and and I got I didn't really want to live in the city much longer I was starting to get particular about um you know things like where I would get bagels from you know like <laughs> or whatever like parts of town that I thought would go I was like this is too much I'm not a New Yorker so uh my wife and I would made a move up here to Beacon and uh and then and then I was able to start the plant nursery and the construction business like you know more full speed once I was up here I, are you from New England or Rhode Island, where you went to school? Or no, no, I'm not. I'm kind of from all over the place. I was uh, elementary school in uh, Philadelphia area, and then in Chicago, and I went to got my undergraduate degree out on the like on the edge of Iowa and um, Illinois, uh, right on the edge, like right on the Mississippi River. Um, lived in California a little bit. Worked at some field stations up in. Uh, ecological field stations up in the north woods in minnesota and also out of vancouver island so i hopped around quite a bit uh but i've been you know in the northeast you know since 2004 and i've been in beacon for i guess 11 years now yeah okay so this is home now you know what i mean this is this <laughs> right is, this is where i'm from now you know gotta start somewhere so you, yeah you've dug in um yeah so how would you when, you know, when you're doing a presentation on One Nature, how would you describe what you guys do? Good question. Um, it depends on who I'm talking to. <laughs> you know, but um, I, I say that we're an interdisciplinary team of, like, artists and builders, scientists, um, a real collaborative practice. Um, and we're, we're, we're a mission-based organization, which uh, we are. We're a certified B Corp, which is uh, B Corp is like... Uh, the business as like fair trade is to coffee or something or or um, organic is to food so we're like certified uh environmental business and our mission is to uh 
is to address the global environmental crisis using the landscape. And uh, that's what we do. We do it um, by growing and selling native and edible plants. Um, we do it by building landscapes. And we do it on the consulting side by planning and working as like almost like creative artists with landscape, um, coming up with ideas on how people can use their property. And, uh, you know, our ideal you know, like kind of clientele is... Uh, is, you know, someone who hires us to think what they want to do, and then we build it, and then we also provide the plants for the same project. And once it's all done, then we like to take care of it. We call it stewardship instead of landscape maintenance to kind of differentiate ourselves from the mow, blow, and go landscaping community. Um, basically, gardening. Uh, so, yeah, that's it. And then, you know, this little plant nursery has really taken off lately. So, I guess we also do that. We're also a retail plant nursery. Um, you know, selling plants out of Glenham, New York. And that's the interesting part of the business that kind of complements the other areas. When we first started, it was just wholesale. We were just going plants for our own projects. Now we're, uh, now we got quite a, quite a booming, uh, retail business, to be honest. Uh, there's definitely a need for that. Uh, it's hard to find enough nurseries sometimes. What's the global area crisis? Well, how would you define it? What, what, where's the need? The global environmental crisis? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> or, I, I I have a strong feeling I have since I was a kid that the earth is out of balance, that it's being exploited, and that um, we're seeing the consequences of that. Um, and I think quite often people gravitate towards the what they call the climate crisis, um, but I, I I think that is a um, is too narrow of a definition for for me to operate. And I you know I think we also have a real problem with loss of biodiversity and. Um, I think like a, a, a psychological and a spiritual connection between, you know, what I see is like predominant, I don't know, American culture or Western culture or whatever with the planet. You know, you guys can relate to this, like management of land. Um, people have become very disconnected from that. Um, and, uh, you know, my personal philosophy is that, you know, reduce, reuse, recycle is great. And that was like the original, like, environmentalist mantra of the 70s or whatever. And I fully support that. But I think there's another side of it, regenerate or um, restore. Um, and uh, we find that people can actually be good for ecology. We're not, you know, necessarily parasites on ecological systems. And that's what a lot of our work is about, is about finding ways for, for people to actually improve their local ecology, um, and, uh, yeah, like, improve the local ecology, not just, like, be neutral or against it. Um, and the landscape's a great way to do that, um, as I'm sure you guys know as well. You know, like, landscape is a great way to make an impact, whether you're managing forests for um, game or, or um, watersheds or what have you, lumber. You know, there's no reason that has to be... Uh, contrary to uh, environmental harmony. Now, when you first meet up with a client, do mo are most of them past that at that point, you know, knowing you know that they're contacting you and need to do something to restore? Are they still stuck on that people are parasites on the landscape regime? Good question. Oh, most, you know, you know, in general. Um, you know, the clients, everyone's so different. You know, everyone's like a real person, you know, and it's hard to... But, like, a lot of them are are keyed into like they want to do the right thing i wouldn't say they necessarily think of it right away a lot of them like as that they're actually making a difference 
you know, like it's almost like this is what they should be doing. Um, that makes any sense? Like uh, a, a lot of folks, like they want to do native plants, they want to do, you know, um, reforestation, they want to do the right thing with their watershed. Um, but um, and I think they do get an idea that they're a piece of a puzzle, but exactly how to how to engage in a meaningful way, they're not quite there yet. I mean, I guess they wouldn't be calling us if they were, <laughs> you know. Um, but uh, yeah, we it kind of it kind of varies. Yeah, because we I mean we have to sometimes go over that Catskill Forest Association with members. You know that we have to try to say you know members are. You can be a positive force in the environment, you know. That's con- that to me. That's what conservation is. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's the essence of conservation, you know. Um, conserve for the future. I guess. Uh, I think you know a lot of a lot of folks. Um, I, what we run into is a practical knowledge issue quite often. Um, a lot of our clients, um, they just don't know the names of the plants that they that's on their property you know like just something as basic as that so we got to come in from like ground level and start to build up that knowledge and explain why we choose to do certain things that are in our plans and our actions um are most of your clients interested in learning that or they they just you know want to hand you the keys and just trust that you know what you're talking about and what you're putting in the ground or do they want that education Um, with it yeah we get yeah, I don't mean to like give you the same answer twice, but again, it does vary. Yeah. Um, they, and and there's a joy in each scenario. You know, you take the one extreme of somebody who knows really what they're doing, and that's a pleasure because we can learn from them. You know, and um, and it actually like makes our work more efficient because like we don't kind of run around if somebody knows exactly what they want. Like if somebody says they want a meadow, like for example, like they want a native meadow in there front yard or and their convert their hay field to meadow or something like that um right away i'm listening for what kind of meadow do they want um if they're describing something that fits uh more the, the new york botanic garden or on the cover of some like you know uh, gardening magazine and i know right there unless they're fabulously wealthy i know right there that they need some education because <laughs> that's really hard to pull off you know but if they're like, if they're, if they understand that there's going to be, thing, that goldenrod and aster, yarrow, um, you, you know these these native plants that people milkweed people often think of as weeds. If they know that those things are actually beneficial from the start, then it's then it's uh, easy, you know. Um, so it's great to work with people who get that. Um, on the other hand, somebody who doesn't know anything, that's also kind of fun too, you know. Like they just hand hand the keys over and give us creative freedom uh, to do it, but you got to be really careful there because you got to make sure that that what they're picturing in their mind of what you're doing for them, because, you know, it costs money, you know, what they're picturing in their mind of what you're doing, we're building for them is actually the reality of what we're building for them. Um, so I learned that a long time ago that uh, it's important to, you know, really provide as much detail about what the end product will be from the outset with people who, who are less familiar with the the topics so if you're just tuning in you're listening to from the forest tonight's topic is one nature with brian quinn brian um before we get into you know the things you you know specifically what you guys do at one nature who's there who who, who's working at one nature what's the team what's the team like uh well we got it really uh we got um 
we flex uh, seasonally because of seasonal business. Uh, you know, we've been up to as high as 20 employees. Uh, right now we're down to eight, uh, partially because it's basically after Thanksgiving now. So, And we got a, a core team. We got, um, we got uh, myself and then uh, another principal here. Uh, she is a sculptor by training, actually, um, but has um, really is also now a trained herbalist, uh, and she does a lot of the uh, principal like type work at this point. She's been here seven years. Um, we got another uh, fella who's uh, comes from the construction industry, construction background. Uh, another guy who's was a, a, a environmental lawyer uh, before. Uh, and got sick of being a lawyer, and now he's a construction project manager. Uh, we've got a uh, nursery team, uh, nursery team, you know, everything from uh, uh, we've had ethnobotanists over the years. We've had uh, uh, herbalists, trained herbalists, um, really, really good diversity of people. Uh, we have another guy who's a project manager from... Uh, uh, from a um, film background, believe it or not, but he's also like one of Beacon's like number one environmental advocates, and uh, wanted to do something a little bit more um, in line with that. Uh, and uh, recently got trained as a permaculture design certificate. So we had quite a motley crew, <laughs> you know. Um, really, really good mix of people. And then they all live in Beacon, pretty much, or. Yeah, um, well, not necessarily Beacon, but Beacon, you know, other towns around Beacon, Cold Spring, Fishkill, Newburgh. Yeah. Um, quite quite proud of that, actually. We've been able to create so many jobs in this area. Cool. Good number of people. So what One Nature does, um, you know, I, I went off your website, more than organic plants, you know, and so could you explain in your own words why native, edible, medicinal, or native plants are important or, or good? Sure. Um, basically, uh, the, the plants, the, the, the insect community and the bird community and all the animals, you know, in this area and in all areas of the globe adapted over eons and, and, and even like million years, you know, like to a particular set of plants and they rely on those things for food and shelter and their livelihoods. Um, and, uh, that that would be like the the plant community you you would have seen like before Henry Hudson sailed up the Hudson River you know um, that that kind of set distinctive set of plants which is a beautiful diversity of plants since then you know through botanical trade and commercial um, industry a lot of uh, non native plants have come into the area and for a while they were in vogue um, that's what everybody wanted was the exotic non native plants. Uh, or including lawn um, in the suburban and rural areas, um, and th and then with the with the increase of those plants, the native plant population went down, and therefore the the native fauna, you know, the the birds, the bees, the butterflies, the animals, they started to lose a lot of their food sources. Um, in addition, we've had a lot of you know blights and disease like. Uh, come through the area that knocked a lot of native plants out. So the, the food, you know, the food and shelter source for these native spe uh, animal species is really suffering. The very long-winded way of saying we're selling the plants to bring that back, you know, like we propagate native plants to, to kind of convert landscapes, you know, in our area especially is mainly developed, um, to convert like non-native landscapes to native landscapes. 
and create like a higher quality habitat for these animals. Is it only native? I mean, I see you sell some non-native. What I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah so native is like the core. And a few years ago, we started selling edible plants as well, um, which are not necessarily non-native. Uh, many are, like apples. I believe come from Czechoslovakia. We sell apples, um, but blueberries are native species here. So we sell a lot of edible plants. Then we sell medicinal plants too. We have a lot of herbalists on our team. Um, and uh, we've seen a lot of demand from people for uh, plant medicine uh, for, you know, basic things uh, like uh, Tulsi basil, for example. Like a lot of people are looking for that or chamomile tea, you know, comes from the chamomile plant. Um, so we do sell uh, medicinal plants as well. And uh, that's kind of our niche, you know, the native medicinal and edible plants. How does deer factor into all this with the plants? Big time. Deer are an issue. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, really site-specific. Um, we've got, you know, we've got a list that we've kind of, like, developed on our own um, of plants that we find to be deer-resistant, but nothing is deer-proof, right? Um, I've seen deer eat plants that I would never think they would eat. Um, yeah. But for the most part, we try to do deer-resistant plants. We also um, do temporary. What are, what are some of those, Brian? Oh, some of the ones that deer have been eating? No, no, um, that are deer resistant. I'd be uh, curious. Deer resistant. Yeah, sure. Well, bayberry is a great one. Yeah. Um, Mirica pensilvatica or morella, depending on. But yeah, bayberry is a really good one. Um, we've been planting American hollies, which seem to fare pretty well against the deer. Um, white pines uh, in this area, I have not seen much too much. Um, and, uh, you know, this smattering is, this, you know, quite a few species actually that they don't really like. Um, but, uh, it really varies a lot, you know, sometimes hard to predict. Yeah. That's I find right. with the trees we often do in the suburban landscape, we, we have, we use a, a metal wire cage in a cylinder shape around the trees. Um, it's a red brand is the, uh, the, they sell it at a tractor supply company. I hate to, not to give commercial plugs to people, but um, that's where we find it. And uh, it's a rigid cage. It stands upright. We keep it on the tree for, you know, two or three years and uh, then take it off and reuse those on other tree plantings. And that helps the tree get up, up, above the browse line where it's out in danger. <clears throat> we also do a lot of temporary, like, netting fences of, like, the uh, inexpensive bird netting plastic. We... Uh, Harvest bamboo from the local uh, monastery here. Uh, there's a there's a capuchin monk monastery down the road here, and uh, they have just massive invasive bamboo groves. So we we cut poles from that, which are dead; they don't sprout. Um, and then we put those on the green tea stakes with zip ties, and then we'll stretch this mesh around like a large meadow planting or shrub planting. Uh, uh, for a year, maybe, and then at that point, like the deer could have at it; they can't kill it because the planting's so big. Um, it tends to tends to be pretty robust. Are there any um, trees, shrubs, herbs that you wish you know that come to mind that you wish there was more of out there? Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> I'd love to see the American chestnut make a comeback. Yeah, um, that uh. That would be quite a, just the abundance of that would just be amazing to see. Um, but uh, I'd also like to see, you know, more plantings of 
things that you might find like more in Pennsylvania or New Jersey because of the, the, I don't know if you followed like the USDA just released their new uh, plant hardiness zone map last week and uh, everything shifted north. The, the, uh, the, it's getting warmer. I don't, do you really buy it? I mean, it might be getting warmer. Do you think really the trees are falling? I haven't seen any evidence of it. They're not falling on their own because they can't. No. You know, uh, I think there's some selective local pressure, but I'm talking about assisted migration where, you know, through human inter- Like, American hollies are getting on the Alex Opaca, right? Like, you almost never see that, you know, around this area. Maybe a few trees down by closer to the river, maybe, but it's more of like a northern PA, northern New Jersey tree. Um, but uh, we do plant that quite a bit um, with the anticipation that the weather's going to cooperate. My problem with this is that I don't think weather is the most influential thing. It's, to me, it's culture. I mean, we're, we're losing our oak. You know, if anything, you know, we might even have a little more maple in the future in certain areas. But, I mean, our oak and hickory are not nearly as abundant as they used to be. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm not against planting oak trees, don't get me wrong. (laughs) You know, but we do have quite a few good populations here, and we plant plenty of those maple trees, too. A little worried about the lanternfly with the maple trees, but we'll see how it goes. Yeah. Can only worry about that because it's not really real here. There's a few lanternflies, not many yet where where we work. Um, But, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think I'm not trying to throw the throw the whole thing out, you know, and start fresh. Um, but, uh, unfortunately, you know, we work in, in the suburban context. A lot of times people, they're going to want an evergreen tree, right? <clears throat> and, uh, can only plant so many white pines, uh, until it starts to feel like, you know, it's not always the right tree. <laughs> they grow tall, they snap. Um, now the Eastern red cedar, Juniperus virginiana is a beautiful tree and I love that, but the deer munch the heck out of it. Right. So in a, in like a, in, in, in like a uh, applied context for us, you know, if we want to do an evergreen tree, we have very few options, which kind of leads us to the American holly, you know, because that is debatably native and it is deer resistant and, uh, you know, it does have that evergreen function, hmm. I guess. So it's kind of like, you know, a compromise, yeah, <laughs> if you <sure>. will. <laughs> you know? That's um, interesting. Yeah, because up on the mountain, there's a... Um a house they got to be at about 1900 feet or so and they got a two or three beautiful american hollies over here in town of olive and um i've been looking at them while i walk and uh they're doing just great so, are they oh, yeah nice. absolutely nice. yeah it's an old farmhouse yeah, I, so they were planted a while ago they, they seem like they're pretty old yeah wow that's nice yeah i've seen quite a few big ones you know around and they look happy and healthy so yeah, assisted migration, <laughs> you know, is what we call it. Um, we even toyed around with the loblolly pine a little bit a few years ago. Um, planted a few of those, which is definitely not a native, you know, from the, like the down south forestry plantations, a lot of loblolly pine. Yeah, right. Um, and, uh, but it grows fast, man. Like, those things grow super fast. <laughs> How are they doing? They still uh, They're doing well. They're doing great. Yeah, they're super happy. Like, what? probably the fastest growing. Like, I love the pitch pine. Yeah, the Pinus rigida. Yeah. Um, that's, like, maybe my favorite evergreen tree. But um, we have trouble getting it to grow quick. Really? Um, yeah, kind of finicky. Like, it'll hang out for a few years and then shoot up or hang out for a few years and not shoot up. And uh, it's, uh, <clears throat> whereas the loblolly pine just goes. 
uh, we kind of tell slowed that down because I think that's a little too much assisted migration on that one. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a funny tree, uh, pitch pine. Um, we're gonna take a break. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to From the Forest, and tonight's topic is One Nature with Brian Quinn. Up next, we'll ask him about his uh, what they do at One Nature in considering uh, gardens, parks, and habitats. I last a while You can't conceive of the pleasure in my smile You hold my hand Rough up my hair It's lots of fun to have you there I gave to you, now you give to me I'd like to know what you've learned Sky is blue and so is the sea. What is the color when black is burning? What is the color? You are a man, you understand. You pick me up and you lay me down again. You make the rules. You say what's fair It's lots of fun to have you there I gave to you, now you give to me I'd like to know what you've learned The sky is blue and so is the sea What is the color when black is burning I am a child I last a while You can't conceive of the pleasure All right you are listening to From the Forest every Wednesday, 6 to 7 p.m. Talk about a different forest-related topic. Tonight's topic is One Nature with Brian Quint. So you guys, let's get into, you know, some of the things you actually install for people on gardens, parks, and habitats. What comes to mind for something that exemplifies um, a good project, I guess? Um, well, I, I guess um, uh, we... Uh yeah, I'm a tough guy to nail down, you know. <laughs> it's just one thing, you know. Just kind of like avoid the labels, right? But um, right. you, you know, I, I love working on uh, public parks. Uh, we did a really cool public park uh, six or seven years ago, maybe eight years ago, in Newburgh, right in the heart of Newburgh, called Safe Harbor's Green, which is a hundred percent native, uh, half acre park on the corner of Liberty and Broadway. If you know, if you know that city, uh, couldn't get it more urban. And uh, we took all the water off the rooftop of the surrounding buildings and the park itself and ran it through a system of swales, like stormwater detention swales. And using that, you know, water we created like like kind of not um, obligative species, but facultative species, uh, facultative species of wetland plants at the bottom. And 
dry meadows up the side and uh, and some really nice uh, native trees in there. It's, you know, about 50% like wild native plants, 50% event space, which, uh, you know, we're quite proud of that project. We still take care of that that job. Um, and it's really, really fun. Been been toured by a lot of local groups as an example of green infrastructure. And uh, it's great to have that resource around. Uh, that's, a, that's a nice one. Uh, we've done some crazy estates, too, like some really big, like, ultra-wealthy people. I can't even say their names, but, like, really large rewilding work. I don't know if you're familiar with that t- term, rewilding. It's kind of trendy. Um, basically, like, taking in giant hay fields and just letting them go and overseeding them and letting them go crazy and really come back to, like, a much more uh, diversity-based, you know, design um, those projects are fun, and uh, we do. We also do a lot of woodworking and masonry work. We do a lot of. Uh, we just did a really cool uh, bluestone reclaimed bluestone and brick um, labyrinth for Vassar College's new uh, um, Center for Religious and Spiritual Studies up in Poughkeepsie. Um, and it was a great hardscape to do. I could tend to do a real work of art. Um, yeah, I don't know. There's, there's three examples. <laughs> I hear John scribbling away. You got a question, John? Uh, do you grow all your plants, or where do you source from? If you're I have the nursery, right? Well, I know you have your nursery, but is, is it everything? Is it all your plants it, come for you? For the for the herbaceous, we're like greater than fifty percent at this point of what we we collect the seed and grow it ourselves, right around there. Um, and then for the woody stuff, uh, we source it. Uh, some of it we grow from seed, but it's just so darn slow. Uh, we source it. We do a lot of cutting propagation. Like we have uh, eleven species of native willows to New York. I couldn't even list all the species for you, but we got eleven of the native. I think there's twelve in total. Eleven New York willow species, and we've grown those from cuttings. Um, and then we we pull from the same willow plants. You know, same with like dogwoods and button bush. We do a lot of live stake cuttings and propagate from them. But then you know the nursery business. It's like anything in farming like you can't do everything so we pull like we find like really cool like wholesalers um and we do purchase stuff well uh for example we found a really great um um not american but european chestnut like for eating chestnuts uh well i mean you can eat the american ones too but they're really hard to find uh but we found a really great chestnut um uh cooperative down in kentucky and we ordered a couple hundred of their bare root plants this year um, pawpaws uh, are really hard. We sell a lot of pawpaws. It's one of our best uh, uh, triloba, I think, uh, the edible fruit that's super trendy right now. Uh, those are really hard to grow from seed, just kind of a crapshoot how well they do. So we buy those from, I think we got a lot from, like, Cummins Nursery. But we buy, like, the little babies. We buy a lot of baby plants, then we grow them into adults. How, you know, I, I have not found the deer to eat pawpaw yet, up here at least. Me neither. I know. They'll rub them. They'll rub them, but but aside from that. Yeah, isn't that strange? It is strange. And, like, I haven't seen many animals eating the fruits. I think I have, like, I think I have, like, like maybe one raccoon at my place. I have, like, I have five pawpaw trees growing there like crazy. And occasionally I'll see some, like, bite marks in it. But for the most part, they just lie where they fall. Yeah, I, I just don't get it. I mean, they're they're they look nice. They grow leaves right down to the ground. I mean, I have a theory about deer that they learn to eat from their mom, and they, if the mom shows them to eat something, they'll eat it. 
and I think they're just kind of hard to find. They're not that popular, at least around us. It's really you don't really walk into them in the woods. I know two native populations in the area here, both in Fonstock Park, um, which is over on, between like Cold Spring and Putnam Valley. But it's not, you know, I don't think that that's something the deer really run into that much. They might not know to eat it, you know. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's a cool theory, but I, I don't know. If that were true, we should be able to reintroduce any type of forest tree species once, you know, two generations of deer have passed, right? Which doesn't take long. Which, you know, yeah, how long yeah, is that? Yeah, Ten years or less? So we can't, you couldn't put sugar maple back down in Fonstock Park down there. It wouldn't work. It's just weird because, like, we have, like, so, like, you know, like, we have we have our urban deer here in Beacon, right? Yeah. And there's... I don't know how many how many pods or herds there are or whatever. Um, you guys are deer hunters. What's the term for multiple deer in a group? The herd? I mean, yeah, a herd of deer, there's families. You know, there's a fawn and, I mean, there's a mother and two fawns, you know, typically, but yeah. Yeah, so we have like a, I don't know, call it, say we got a dozen of those pods, you know. Yeah. And like in one neighborhood, they'll eat the bayberry, but not in the other neighborhoods. Right. Just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Right? I mean, they are individuals. I guess the question would be, do they eat them down south? Right. Yeah. Because you know, they can definitely know. learn to eat them. You know, it could be a harsh winter and they're like, oh, what's this? Right. You know, it's like going to the convenience store. You see a new flavor of chips and salsa. You're like, I'll try this one. I, I can say that deer browse has gotten worse within the 15 years I've been in Delaware County. For example... <laughs> Arborvitae. When I first moved to 2007 to my landlord's place at the time in Margerville, the Arborvitae were fine. And within 2007 to 10, my landlord complained for the first time that they were eating her, her Arborvitae. And, you know, and then I heard a person from Pennsylvania say that they saw Norway spruce browse by deer. And I was like, you are crazy. You're crazy. <laughs> And then I saw it. I've seen it in Sullivan County. I've seen it in Gardner near New Paltz and um, Swan Lake, Sullivan County. But, yeah, so, you know, hemlock never used to, you know, hemlock starvation mm -hmm. food. Beach, I've seen them mm -hmm. browse the crap beach. out of beach. Yeah, beach is weird. Like, that. I have not seen that browse so much, but a couple times, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I, I don't know. It's like, you know, and, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, down here, hemlocks don't stand a chance. Right. I wouldn't think so. Yeah, but, you know, it's pretty mature down there, though. The forest mm -hmm. is mature. There's just not many young plants. Maybe around town there is where the humans are, but you get up on that, from what I remember hunting. It's mature forest, and there's just nothing to eat. Yeah, I mean, and then with the Norway maple, the only thing that grows under Norway maples, you know what that is, is the Norway maple. Yeah, sure. sure. That's not, <laughs> not very delectable to the deer either. Um, yeah, yeah. It's just all mature forest without the without the undergrowth. They just everything's knocked out by the deer. Um, yeah, how do you guys feel about these deer exclosure fences? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, that's all I did yesterday was assess an area in Woodstock for yeah. um, putting a fence up. And unfortunately, I think um, if we don't burn and we don't cut cut more trees and shoot more deer, CBS, you know, cut, burn, shoot. We're going to have mm -hmm. the fence. It's just, it's the future, unfortunately, um, at least for a time period, because I don't see how you regenerate woodlands without it. And we had a very, 
you know, deep-pocketed client uh, in um, Putnam County a couple years ago and paid us to install a mile of deer fence, um, a mile linear foot of deer fence for a deer exposure. How many acres yeah. did it enclose? Do you remember? Uh, what's a mile? Jeez, I don't know. Uh, the geez, math. It was like, it must have been like 20, 30. Mm-hmm. Well, we know, got a lot of work lot. up here if you want to do more of them. <laughs> I mean, it's like kind of an neat, if, if the, there's not too many rocks, like, <laughs> you know, it's a nice plug and play thing. But the thing is, every time there's a windstorm, they had to pay us to come down and fix it. Yeah. Do you remember you know, the... So like, do you remember the material cost per foot on that by chance? We're just looking for uh, examples out there just from many people recently. Just we, the ballpark. Such variation. Just the material cost per foot? Yeah. Um, I don't know. Whatever 20000 is divided by... 5200 So okay. four something. Yeah. All right. So it's plastic fencing maybe? Well, actually, huh, we had to go before the town board and... Um, and we really workshopped this a lot. And um, yeah. what we ended up doing is we used um, plastic fence in the upland areas. But then in the lowland areas, we used, um, there's a there's a type of like horse fence or cattle fence at the bottom. It's metal and at the bottom it's a very narrow opening. Yeah. But at the top it's really wide. It sounds like high and tensile woven wire. It, yeah, it's high tensile. It's like, um, you know, it's uh, knotted wire, not welded wire. Okay. And you put tension on it to pull it, but the point is that it has wide openings at the top and narrow ones at the bottom. Yeah. And we we were worried about like excluding things like bobcats, you know. So we flipped it upside down. We installed that upside down. So the narrow stuff was at the top, and the wide stuff was at the bottom. Okay. And uh, so that cost, you know, it's like, you know, call it like thirty percent of the fence material was was that stuff, and that required like a stronger post because it's heavier. Huh. Yeah, if you just do plastic, like deer busters, you know, fence or whatever, it's I think it's significantly cheaper. Did you get any deer inside? Uh, we put up five game cameras, <laughs> and uh, there was like one or two that like were almost like were present, but didn't seem to hang out there too much. Um, and then, like basically, like a windstorm would come and knock down the fence. And then, like, a deer would nose in there and then kind of, like, take off, and we'd fix the fence. We never had a trap deer. Uh, We did have a bear break one panel of the fence down. Yeah. Um, But it's like, even with the game cameras, it's really hard to tell what's in there. Um, There's some statistic about carrying capacity of eastern deciduous forests that I I came across in one peer-reviewed journal. Um, And... There's some, I don't have the number off the top of my head, but there's some number of deer that you can have per acre. It's less than one per acre, obviously, that is supposed to be tolerable, you know, and and not, like, completely denude the forest floor. So even by having one or two deer inside that, like, 30-acre area or whatever it was, we were, like, still below that number of what was considered carrying capacity. That's just one peer-reviewed article. Like, it's not adjusted for the Yeah, that's totally going to depend on, you know, the vegetation that's there, the food sources available, what's growing, habitat requirements, things like that. But did you, um, how many years has that been up, and have you seen any uh, native regeneration or plants uh, return that surprised you? Uh, It's been up three years, and we see a lot of stuff popping up. A lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. Um... Like what? Uh, like what? 
Let me search my memory here. <laughs> Trilliums? <laughs> you some, um, you know, it's kind of like yeah, kind of a touchy subject good. because there's also like an active herbicide um, approach on the property, um, which we don't do any herbicide. We're super, like, we don't even touch herbicide. We wish it didn't exist, but that's present on this job site. So we've had incidences of plants growing up and then it getting sprayed, which is like kind of defeats the purpose because they just, they, it's like using a flamethrower, you know, it's just like okay. they, it's just like a general spray they do to try to keep whatever down. Mm. Um, so a lot of what had been coming up, uh, we think we had sycamores. We definitely had a lot of sycamores. Um, we had, uh, some maples, I believe. Uh, I don't recall whether they're reds or sugars coming up. Probably um, both. Quite possibly. Um, I think definitely red, but I just, I think there's sugar maples in there. Yeah. Um, we had, uh, I think we had some, some, uh, Tulip poplars, a lot of tulip poplars popping up. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, those are a few of them. But, uh, again, like a lot of it was, like, knocked down by this herbicide stuff. Yeah, I don't know why so. they're doing that. But what what would you say? I mean, we're, we're running out of time, but we're not only got about four minutes. Um, if you're missing the show, tonight's show is One Nature with Brian Quinn. Brian, what, what would you say? Um, and I know I'm going to put you in a box again, so you might not like this. But, uh typical client <laughs> like uh-huh. you know what what's a, a like a typical kind of job that maybe has repeated itself you know that you would say yeah okay that's yeah. what we do kind of that's our bread and butter you know that's what we do well i think a good way to answer that one um we've done over 200 gardens in beacon believe it or not in the last 10 years Jeez, 200 gardens like paid like real gardens now some of them are like you know a couple grand, they're not big, but oh, some of them are like you know, eighty, hundred grand, and thousand, hundred thousand um, dollars, and uh, and and it's like it's it's like you know, we we've kind of benefited from the COVID uh, migration or whatever, you know, people coming up here, and just Beacon itself has been a really hot housing market. A lot of people in the city moving up. Sure, people come up, you know, and they want they're leaving the city and they're looking for. You know, they want to live the good life. They want to, <laughs> a lot of the client inquiries, like, you should read them. They're very similar. They're like, we'd like an orchard, chickens, um, you know, a, a permaculture landscape, stormwater system, vegetable garden and flower farm, and a greenhouse, like, all, like, by tomorrow, you know? Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, and I'm like, well, you start slow, go to the farmer's market, <laughs> you know, get your, get your eggs there for the first few years. You know, but um, a lot of folks who come up and they want to like really like have like this like kind of like permaculture kind of landscape, and uh, we you know it's pretty pretty good for us. You know, every we get to everyone is different and they're not the same. Every single plan we come up with is is very different and site specific. Um, but uh, when you add up all those two hundred projects, it comes to forty two. Last math I did was forty two and a half acres, which is a very large area for a small city like this, and. Um, that, that kind of like fragmented park, you know, for pollinator, because most of this is native plants, right? So, uh, you've got quite a, if you're a butterfly or a bird flying in Beacon, like your options are pretty good right now, you know? And then I think, I'm hoping in my lifetime that I'll start to see seed dispersal from those projects. What do some you know, of these with, gardens look like? Oh, like, like a, a lot of like, um, like formal beds that are planted with native species. A lot of hedgerows of like willows or low growing trees. Um, 
quite a bit of we do a lot of like uh rain garden or bioswale type like like we take the gutters from the houses and we pitch them right into the into a low spot or we dig out a low spot and plant those um but like very like kind of curvy kind of wild like very different than like your clean cookie cutter you know suburban lawn like you definitely know the one nature project on the block when you see it you know it's like some people would say oh it's overgrown or not maintained when that in fact it's very maintained and not overgrown <laughs> you know right, but uh right. a lot of bluestone we use bluestone because bluestone is like a locally cored thing uh we do a lot of uh fencing out of a uh, hemlock and white oak um and uh a little bit of cedar um a lot of like arbors pergolas raised beds you know uh it's, you know it, it depends on like you know who's the project manager leading it we've all got our own little kind of style of how we do things but uh, yeah and, and they're you know they're from anything from like you know a few hundred square foot like back little tiny backyard like closer down you know to the core center of town to you know half acre out on the edges acre yeah cool uh brian we want to thank you for for coming on tonight and taking the time oh thank you for the opportunity i really appreciate it the more i can get out there the better it is for our our team <laughs> and people can go online and to reach you guys or something or what's oh, the best yeah. way yeah yeah just one nature o-n-e-n-a-t-u-r-e-l-l-c.com one nature.com one nature llc.com and uh learn more about our work We've got a good instagram account too and find us there all right just give us a call all right thank you brian take yeah. care have a good night Thank you both. Good talking with you. All right. Have a good one. Well, the neon lights were flashing and the icy wind did blow. The water seeped into his shoes and the drizzle turned to snow. His eyes were red, his hopes were dead, and the wine was running low. And the old man came home from the forest. His tears fell on sidewalk as he stumbled in the street a dozen faces stopped to stare but no one stopped to speak for his castle was a hallway and the bottle was his friend and the old man stumbled in from the forest up a dark and dingy staircase the old man made his way Ragged coat around him as upon his cot he lay And he wondered how it happened that he'd ended up this way Getting lost like a fool in the forest And as he lay there sleeping, a vision did appear so dear who'd loved him in the springtime of a long forgotten year when the wildflowers did bloom in the forest WIOX is supported by you and the following underwriters the Mountain Eagle, the community newspaper and website serving the Catskills region, covering Delaware, Schoharie, Green, and northern Ulster counties, with local reporting, regional events, school sports, letters, and features, all in the Mountain Eagle.
Chappie's Good Food on Main Street in Roxbury for lunch, dinner, and cocktails. And Chappie's sister restaurant, the Old Mill Steakhouse, just around the corner on Bridge Street. Chappie's open every day. The Old Mill Steakhouse, open on weekends. 607 326 